You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, keep Mark 10 open before you as uh, in your bulletin. Uh, you know, few texts are as well known as the rich young ruler, and there are few texts that are as contested as this one. Now, I think this narrative appears every year in our lectionary from at least one gospel or another. And every time I hear it, it comes as a jolt. Jesus actually told a man, a sincere man, I think, who wanted to have the security of eternal life, that all he needed to do was sell everything and follow him. And that's not the answer we'd hope Jesus would give. We'd, I'd prefer seeing Jesus lead him in a sinner's prayer, you know, pat him on the back, and say, I'm so happy for you, as Jesus moseys on his way. But that's not what happens. So this scene, I'll have to confess, it makes me swallow hard every time I hear it. And here we are again. You know, at moments in the early church, the rich young ruler narrative was seen as a directive for the relinquishing of all material wealth in order to follow Jesus. You know, the monastic movement, for example, became viewed as the hero or heroine's path of Christian life, of leaving all to follow Jesus. But then as the church grew, so did the church's own material wealth, and it problemized, uh, problematized this particular reading. There's a massive book out just recently, actually, from a significant scholar named Peter Brown entitled Through the Eye of the Needle, and it's a wrestling with the uh, early church's struggle to come to terms with wealth. And as you go down through the centuries, even someone like John Calvin in the 16th century took an opportunity in his comments on this text to take a jab at monastic life. So th this is now what John Calvin says, commenting on the rich young ruler in his commentary. This is what he says. But what sort of thing is that famous selling on which the monks plume themselves? A good part of them, finding no provision at home, plunge themselves into monasteries as well-stocked hogsties. Not very nice, actually. All take such good care of themselves that they feed in idleness on the bread of others. A rare exchange, truly, when those who are ordered to give to the poor what they justly possess are not satisfied with their own, but they seize on the property of others. Thank you, Mr. Calvin. So what do we do with the rich young ruler? Nothing. You're dismissed. I'm joking. We have to do something. So let's take another look this morning, and our reading won't be exhaustive, but we'll take a particular angle to try and hear this text once again. Okay, so with it before you, it shouldn't surprise us, I don't think, to see Jesus or to hear Jesus speak in startling ways. You see, Jesus is turning religious and cultural assumptions upside down. It's what he does best. We've already heard Jesus encourage us to amputate limbs that might come as a stumbling block to disbelief or to belief. In the previous scene in Mark chapter 10, Jesus welcomes little children to him. He blesses them, and he tells his disciples that if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, then you'll need to become like little children. We live in a world that romanticizes little children, 
I don't think that was the case in Jesus' day. And Jesus says, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, then you're going to have to become like one of these little ones. The kingdom belongs to people like this. The kingdom belongs to those who see themselves as a child with nothing much to offer but to receive and delight in me. Those who are the object of my blessing. What makes those children so special, Jesus? They're blessed by me. They've come with open arms towards me. They've embraced me without any reservation. That's what makes the children special. And it's on the heels of that scene with the little children that we find the young man running up to Jesus and kneeling before him. You've noticed that? Running and kneeling. He's eager and he's sincere. He doesn't come to challenge Jesus. He comes with an earnest zeal, a real desire for eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's the question of the ages. If materialism is wrong, that view that all we have is the material world around us and there's nothing else, if that's a wrong view of reality, and I believe it is, then wouldn't we want to know how to seize on eternal life? It's hard, I think, for us to live with eternity in view. But when we do think on it in those moments when it comes into view for us, can there be a more pertinent or desperate question to ask? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there are a few tipping points in this text that are worth pointing out. I think Mark is signaling Jesus' pitches this morning in this text. One, I want you to notice the first clause in the verse, in the first scene. It says this, as Jesus was setting out on his journey. Now, you may have heard this before, but Mark's gospel, if you look at it from a Goodyear blimp's view, the whole gospel is a gospel that's on the move. And readers feel the force of the moving character of Mark's gospel in the structure of the whole. The book is moving from Galilee and the outer reaches of Israel as Jesus now makes his way to Jerusalem and to the cross. Some have even referred to the narrative portion of Mark's gospel of Jesus' ministry as one big prelude to the passion. Everything's moving kind of tyrannically to the cross. So when this story begins, it says, as he was setting out on his journey. And we know from the view of the whole of Mark's gospel that Jesus was on his way to the cross. And if this young man wants eternal life, then he has to go with Jesus on that road, with Jesus to the cross. And anything that hinders him from getting on that road to follow Jesus needs to be amputated. So Jesus has to get really personal with this young man to help him see that eternal life is not about doing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But it's about following Jesus to the place of the cross. Tuck this away. We're going to come back to this in a few moments. There's a second tipping in this text. Jesus says another thing to the young man that's always troubled me. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. I'll hear my own children sometimes trip up on Trinitarian logic. Let's pray to God. I mean to Jesus. I mean Jesus is God. We struggle with this, don't we? Jesus here seems to distance himself from God. Don't call me good. Only God is good. But don't follow that path. That is a path down a wrong course. 
Jesus is making a point to the young man. He's tipping something here. Jesus isn't making any claim about his divine or semi-divine status. Jesus is challenging this man's concept of goodness right from the start. We can't even get out of the first two verses of this narrative where Jesus is leaning hard but lovingly into this young man. Because the young man is probably working with some level of self-confidence confidence about, about his goodness. And Jesus peers right into this young man's heart. And before we are two verses into the scene, Jesus is pulling back the curtain. No one's good but God. The standard of our measurement of goodness is God himself. You see, the man is thinking in horizontal terms, in terms of comparison with others. But, but God is the standard. So Jesus leans into his his supposed goodness. Do you know the Ten Commandments, young man? Oh, yes, Jesus, I know them. I've kept them from my youth. No stealing, no adultery, no false witness, no idolatry. And there's no reason not to believe the sincerity of this young man's claim. My life is marked, not necessarily by perfection, but my life is marked by observance and allegiance to the Torah, to the law. Jesus, I have a clean conscience. But remember, Jesus is probing. Jesus brings up the Ten Commandments. Isn't that interesting? Jesus brings it up, not the young man. Because Jesus is leading this young man down a path of self-discovery. He's helping him come to terms with who he truly is. And I love this next line in Mark's Gospel. It's one that we often sort of flit right past. It says, and Jesus looking on him loved him. Jesus wants him on board. But Jesus has to let this young man see himself. And notice this. It's an act of love for Jesus to uncover us. It's an act of divine kindness for us to be laid bare before the truth of who Jesus is and who we are. This is a loving thing that Jesus is doing. Those hard looks in the mirror that lead us to shame or lead us to guilt or lead us to an honest assessment of who we really are, those moments are moments of Jesus' great love for us. What an act of cruelty to allow us to be, remain ignorant of who we truly are. What a moment of divine wrath, see Romans 1, for God to allow us and give us over to our own creaturely desires in forgetfulness of him and forgetfulness of our true selves. The man, it says, after Jesus told him to sell everything, the man was overcast with a dark shadow. Why? Because he had so many things. It's not what must I do to inherit eternal life. It's where must I be to inherit eternal life on the road with Jesus. It's whose must I be to inherit eternal life. It's why Jesus says it's so hard for wealthy people to inherit eternal life. Because you see little children in the previous text... They see how needy they are. They see how dependent they are, how lost they are without gracious provision of another. Only these types of people inherit eternal life. Only those who follow Jesus on his journey to the cross, only those people inherit eternal life. There is so much more to say 
about this text in Mark's gospel. I've wrestled with it this week. But can I leave you with one question this morning? And it's not the only question that I think this text wants you to wrestle with. But I think it ranges somewhere near the center of its concern. And here's the question. What's keeping you from following Jesus? Or perhaps put another way, what's your self-understanding? How would you define yourself? The man in our text is a sincerely religious person with significant material wealth. That's who he is. But Jesus invites him to be the one who follows him to the cross. And he invites you and me too so that when we go to that place, we discover our true selves, our true identity. Who are you? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm like a child. I'm the object of his blessing and his grace. And everything else is secondary. Or perhaps put better, everything else, my possessions, my family, my vocation, all of that's in service of him. Because my selfhood, my identity, is with that one who's on his way to the cross. Without him, I'm lost. Without him, I'm nothing. Jesus is helping us this morning. He's helping you this morning know yourself. He's helping you have an honest conversation with him. It's a difficult conversation, I'll admit, but it's certainly one worth having. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.